You can find 45 different cyber incident reporting requirements, count them, in place across the federal government. And there's more on the way. The Department of Homeland Security does say, though, agencies can do a few things to streamline all of it. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. All right, so DHS, of course, is behind a lot of these rules in the first place, but that notwithstanding, what are they recommending here and to make sense for people that have to do the reporting? Well, DHS is saying agencies could do things like adopt a common definition of what a reportable cyber incident actually is. They could also adopt a common form that these organizations who have to comply with these rules could use to report cyber incidents. And then agencies could work to kind of standardize the timelines that these different organizations have to report cyber incidents on, uh, depending on whether it's a data breach that could take a little bit more time versus an issue of national security, which should be reported pretty quickly. That's all in a report DHS issued earlier this week called the Harmonization of Cyber Incident Reporting to the Federal Government. This was a pretty highly anticipated document in the cyber world because there's just these growing body of cyber incident reporting rules that have to do with data breaches, health security, national security. And uh, as we mentioned at the top, there's more on the way with uh, the CISA rule that's coming out shortly uh, that's going to affect all critical infrastructure sectors. Lawmakers are also growing a little bit concerned that there's a lot of overlap here. So this DHS report really kind of shows some some areas where they could make some progress. And DHS is basically recommending this to the government for dealing with industry, which is the one that has all of these requirements. That's right. It's it's across all, a lot of different government agencies. The, this report actually stemmed from uh, something called the Cyber Incident Reporting Council. It's a new body that DHS helps lead, but there's 33 federal agencies and entities on there in total, ranging from the SEC to the FCC to the Department of Treasury to the FBI, all of these different entities that have something to do with cyber incident reporting, they're on it. And are there any high-profile rules that could be a model that maybe people could line up behind? Well, one that everyone's kind of paying attention to right now is the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, came out with a a rule for public companies earlier this year that would require them to do things like report cyber incidents as part of their public disclosures within uh, four days of discovering the incidents. That's a very stark example of a a cyber incident reporting requirement that is uh, it's got a lot of people ginned up actually. Uh, House Homeland Security lawmakers actually wrote the SEC telling them to kind of back off on this rule and wait for CISA to come out with its big cyber incident reporting rule next year. So there's a lot in flux here at the moment. Let's talk about that CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency forthcoming rule. What do we know about it? What is it aimed at? What are its goals? And do we know anything that will be in it specifically yet. Well, that's what's interesting about this report is that it might tip the cap a little bit to what CISA is going to come out with a rulemaking here uh, either later this year or early next year. So the CISA rule will require critical infrastructure companies to report cyber incidents to CISA within 72 hours of discovering them. And that's a big deal. It's one of the most sweeping cybersecurity requirements will be to ever hit the private sector. As I said, the rulemaking is not yet out. And, you know, it's hard to say with what's going to be in a regulation. But this is a DHS report. CISA is a part of DHS. I talked to some folks who said it'd be a little hard to uh, see CISA coming out with something totally different than what's in this DHS report. For instance, there's a common 
form that I mentioned that DHS proposes here. CISA has been working on a form that we know of as part of this rulemaking. Michael Daniel, president and chief executive officer of the Cyber Threat Alliance, former National Security Council official, he said this form is actually a pretty big deal because it actually shows what the government might be asking for as part of the CISA rule. It's very easy to talk about these things in the abstract. And when you actually start coming up with a reporting form, that really makes it much more concrete, right? It makes it much more real. And you can really start to tease out where the issues and problems might actually emerge. And so I think it's really exciting that they took the time and put in the effort to generate that kind of standardized format. And of course, there are different rules for public traded companies like the SEC. That's all they deal with. But there's lots of private companies that deal with the government that have classified and maybe sensitive but unclassified information and all of this. So it divides among public or private different rules. Does it also go different from sector to sector? Because DHS only oversees certain parts of critical infrastructure. Other agencies, other departments oversee other parts of critical infrastructure across industry. Yeah, that's right. What really came out in this report is that different sectors are in different kind of stages of maturity, if you will, in dealing with incident reporting requirements. So the financial services sector, for instance, is subject to eight different incident reporting requirements, depending on whether it's a data breach or something else, if you're a really important firm, financial services firm. And that seems like it could be pretty confusing. But what came out of this report is that the financial services sector actually has a lot of structure in place to coordinate different reporting mechanisms and to minimize the regulatory overlap. Then there's other sectors like the gas, oil, and pipeline sectors who have only recently started to have to report cyber incidents to the government because of the colonial pipeline incident that happened a couple years ago. And then still more, there's other sectors who right now aren't subject to any incident reporting rules. Water and wastewater sector, there's tens of thousands of organizations within that sector. Right now, they don't have to report cyber incidents to the government. But as we've been talking about, the CISA rule will apply to all critical infrastructure. And so it will be interesting to see how these different sectors deal with that when it comes out. Well, it's a good thing the wastewater and sewage water pipes don't cross or share any common infrastructure with freshwater. Imagine a hack that could send sewers right up to people's faucets. Then you would really have a public outcry over cybersecurity. All right. So DHS is trying to harmonize all of this. What will we expect next? When are they going to get on with it? DHS says it's going to work through that incident reporting council that I, I spoke about earlier with all these different agencies to start to implement some of these recommendations. It'll it'll be interesting because as we've talked about, as you've talked about, DHS is responsible for some of these rules. There's the CISA rule. There's the TSA rules for pipelines. Uh, they can pretty easily say, okay, guys, we're going to get on board with these different recommendations. But then you've got these independent agencies like the SEC and the FTC who are, you know, independent by nature. They aren't as answerable to, you know, the White House and, and things like that. So will they adopt these recommendations? That still remains to be seen, even though they are on the council who helped uh, generate them. And then Congress, uh, you know, the report talks about how there could be some legislative language that fixes some of these these issues, like providing authority and funding that allows agencies to actually share incident reporting data. That could be a big fix that we could see from Congress if someone is willing to pick that up. But that's one thing the DHS report is recommending here. 
Yeah, there is the issue of the need for uniformity so that industry doesn't go crazy with cost for implementing all of these different reporting. But then you do have some sectors and some industries and maybe some agencies that have, I guess you could argue, unique requirements for reporting. So it's a matter of striking the balance. You can't have the FTC coming up with a whole new regime that's completely out of sync with what DHS is asking, for example. And I wanted to know also, what about DOD and CMMC and some of the reporting requirements coming out of the Defense Department? Is that part of the harmonizing, or could that be a voluntary part of the harmonizing? Well, actually, DOD actually does have uh, reporting requirements in place for defense contractors, uh, for cleared defense contractors at least. When uh, an incident hits their networks, they're required to report to the Defense Department. And they are a part of this Incident Reporting Council, so they have signed on, uh, at least notionally, to these recommendations. There are a lot of other government contractors who are... Uh, you know, have to report cyber incidents to the government, to GSA, for instance, as well, too. So that that's definitely an element of this. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Jane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years I had compartmentalized a part of me and I had hidden things and I had not been my full self at work and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times 
thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first How did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first and so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also, it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to 
speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that. I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can. And the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. So you just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that 
quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit. You've been exposed to more things and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Poland, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life-and-death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.